Well, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Let's continue our worship now by opening up, as Cam said, to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, you're probably wondering why we're not opening up in Genesis 4, um, but we take the summers, the elders have thought it good to take the summers to go into the Psalms. So we've made it from Psalm 1, now we're all the way up to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, if you'd turn there and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. It's kind of a long one. Psalm 51, this is God's Word. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to, the compa- according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak And pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege of coming together to open up this divinely inspired text. Change our hearts through it. Soften our hearts to be able to receive its truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, again, for the past five summers, starting with Psalm 1, we've worked our way consecutively up to Psalm 51, our text for this morning. And personally, I can't think of a better psalm to kick off the summer of 2023 than this one, especially on the heels of two months in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind. Here we see a wonderful illustration A real-life illustration of a man who was directly impacted by the events in the garden. Here we read the testimony of a man 
a fallen yet powerful man, and in fact, a chosen man, chosen by God, handpicked, hand-selected by the Lord Most High to be the leader of a chosen nation of his chosen people, a divinely appointed king, but still just a man, a, a man impacted personally by the fall in the Garden of Eden, a fallen king who was ruling over a fallen people, living out the rest of his life on a corrupted and cursed earth. And how does this fallen king live up to such a great task as leading a fallen people? The answer is through humble submission to the king of kings. By being an example to other fallen women uh, and men and women as to how they ought to live out the rest of their lives in a way that's honoring and pleasing to their creator. And Example, which at times comes through adversity, how we respond to adversity from outsiders, from the evil world around us, and sometimes the example comes in how we respond to the adversity of our own making and the evil within us. The latter is certainly true of this song. Here, King David leads by example, and he does so in humility, submission, Faith, genuine, God-granted faith. Notice from the superscription, the text which is above the text, that this was a psalm. It was a song, a sacred song written for the choir director to then be put to music. And what is the basis of this song? The content of this song? It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is a song about sin. It's about some of the most heinous sins committed in human history, the sins of this powerful king whom you may have heard was walking on the rooftop of his palace in the cool of the spring night while his army was out fighting the sons of Ammon and Rabbah, this mighty king who stayed back while his troops were in battle, taking a stroll only to notice a beautiful woman bathing in a nearby home, this King who then began lusting after her in his heart and then taking the next step to inquire about her, only to be clearly informed that this was the wife of one of his soldiers, one of the captains who was out fighting in that same battle at Rabbah, all while his chief commander was at home seducing his wife. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the Wife of Uriah the Hittite, they said to David. No matter. I want her. Bring her to me. They bring her to him. Immediately that night, knowing full well who she was, he took her and lay with her. That's what this psalm is about here. Uh, This is a psalm about David's going into this married woman, even impregnating this married woman, which then causes him to scheme and strategize and a desperate attempt to then cover up his transgression, including inviting Uriah back from the battlefield in hopes of his going home and laying with his wife so that he would be fooled into thinking that David's child was then his child? That's sin? This sin is is written to the choir director for public worship in the sanctuary of God, how when Uriah, this mighty warrior, then refused to lay with his wife while his fellow soldiers were on the battlefield, David then tries to lick her up a little bit. 
frantically trying to undo what can't be undone before finally sending him back out into the battlefield, intentionally putting him on the front lines in the most intense part of the fight, only to then command his troops to withdraw while the battle raged, leaving Uriah alone to be ravaged by his enemies while his wife was continuing to be ravaged by the king. A sinful song, a song of lust, fornication, bearing false witness, drunkenness, adultery, murder, murder. That's what this psalm is about here? Answer, no. That's not what the psalm is about. It's not about David's sinful acts with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. It's about David's response to his sinful acts with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. It's about a believer's response to their own sin. A true believer's response to sin. It's God's using David, a man after his own heart, by the way, as an example, as a testimony of how he can drive his people to a place of utter brokenness. And all in order to glorify himself through the abundant mercy that he then showers upon them. This is, this is a psalm detailing a true believer's raw confession of why he sinned, what caused him to sin, and then his mourning over this sin, and, and his urgent flight back toward the only source with, which could then rid him of his sin. It's about David's repenting of his sin, turning from his sin, forsaking his sin, not defending his sin, not making excuses for his sin, not minimizing his sin, but acknowledging his sin and turning from his sin and turning back to his God in borderline despair, but also with hope, a God-given inkling of hope that he might actually be forgiven of his sin. That's what this psalm is about here. And, and it's, a, it's an example graciously given to the people of God from God as a wonderful demonstration of true and saving faith, which was desperately needed for the worshipers of God in the temple, as it is desperately needed now, some 3,000 years later, for the worshipers of God in the church. Because there seems to be a lot of confusion about what it means to be a true, reconciled, redeemed, believing child of the Lord Most High, which we know that David was. So then, I want to give you six characteristics using this psalm. Six characteristics, there are surely more, but for our time, six. Six evidences of genuine saving faith. And it starts with number one, the believer's view of God. The believer's reverence for his or her creator. Again, David doesn't bring up the details of his his specific sin in the psalm. He doesn't need to, because everyone knew it. This was the talk of the town. This was on the front page of the Temple Temple Times. This was all the buzz about the city. It would go on to be immortalized in the detail on the pages of holy and inspired scripture. He didn't talk about the details of his sin here. Instead, he drove, drove right into his appeal for divine favor. He made a desperate plea for grace and mercy, which could only come from God Almighty, God whom he didn't simply admire, but God whom he adored. Okay? Look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, 
according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice, David is recounting what he knows to be true of the nature of his creator, and he's making his appeal for divine forgiveness based off of those truths. David knows that Yahweh is compassionate. He knows his creator is gracious and merciful, that he shows a tender compassion to those who are his. He has seen the track record of God's mercy and grace being extended, not only in his own life, but in his extending the same compassionate grace to past generations. His loving kindness, his loyal love, steadfast love, some translations might say, this chesed is the word, a special love, special grace, which exceeds the common love and common grace Yahweh shows to all men. This kind of love is reserved for those who are his, the children of God. And it's this kind of love that David longs for in, in the midst of this self-inflicted adversity, okay? Like any true believer, David both knew and took refuge in the attributes and perfections of God. He went right back to the source. He went right back to what he knew to be true about his Lord. He had seen others in the same position, having offended this holy God through their sin, yet were not only forgiven of their sin, but also who were then used mightily by God to bring glory to his name as they lived out the rest of their lives on this corrupted and cursed earth. David knew that Yahweh had showed them chesed, loyal, steadfast love, the Uh, He saw being extended to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the people of Israel even, who grumbled and complained and and rebelled against the Lord at every turn, and yet the Lord remained faithful to his promises to them. His covenant promises, his promises of land, promises of preservation and blessings, even the promises of a seed, one who is to come, a redeemer, a deliverer. how the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. Promises that went all the way back to the garden, where where Adam and Eve were shown that same divine favor and divine mercy, where God's goodness and mercy were evident from the very creation of the world. Notice, David even uses the same name, Elohim, in in his petition here. Be gracious to me, Elohim, the supreme God, God Almighty. We'll even see in verse 10 where he says, Create in me a clean heart. Same word as used in Genesis 1. Barach, uh, create in me. Meaning this cleansing, this blotting out, as David says of his transgression, will require nothing short of divine intervention. A divine miracle will need to take place here. Be gracious to me, O God. According to that which I know is true about you, namely your mercy, your loving kindness, your compassion, the mercy which abounds, I need it. Then he finally mentions the sins. He asks to be rid of them. He says, blot them out, wipe them out, erase them, remove them from existence, please. And what we see here is David's utter dependence upon God for any hope of restoration and forgiveness. This, of course, comes out of a true reverence for God, 
a true devotion to God, which comes from a true knowledge of God, a knowledge of God's nature, how he operates and engages with his creatures according to past occurrences and, and divine revelation, including divine revelation, which David had full access to, by the way, rather than what we often see today, which is man's distortion of God's character and nature. Uh, man's interpretation of God's nature, which is based more off how we feel God ought to operate than what he has clearly revealed about himself in his word. And that's where we begin to see in a mere admiration of God instead of the believer's adoration of God, okay? Here's where these surface-level prayers to God general begin to creep in. You've heard it before, athletes, entertainers, all these politicians giving thanks to God, general. I think our president says, God bless America. Well, I'm not too sure I want to be blessed by the God that he, he worships. But it's a general God. What God are they referring to? This is where we begin to hear people asking God, general, to get them out of such and such a situation. Oh, God, if you're up there, If you can hear me, if you can just get me out of this mess, I promise I will be better. That's the God of Hollywood. Or even worse, the God general of the prosperity gospel. Taking the God of the scriptures and treating them like they're all all powerful genie, their personal genie, or, or a lucky rabbit's foot. That's an admiration of God. Yeah, God's got my back. He has plans to prosper me and and protect me, plans for hope and a future. As long as I toss a little credit his way from time to time, say the word God from time to time, God wants what's best for you, they say. God wants you to thrive. God wants you to be without trials, without struggles, without sickness, and without pain. They even have to again ask, what God are you talking about? It's the same with Jesus. They do the same thing with Jesus. Oh, he was such a good man, such a gifted teacher, such great morals. In other words, a lot of people know a lot about Jesus and admire Jesus, but they don't truly know Jesus. They don't adore Jesus. They may know a lot about God and admire some of God's characteristics, usually the ones that benefit them in some way, but they don't know the great I am. They don't truly know and then adore Yahweh God. They don't adore Yahweh God as David adored God, for example, as the hymnist adored God. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. David and all true faithful men and women of God adore God because they know he is the ultimate source of all true grace, mercy, compassion, and love. Therefore, he is our everything. We adore him, the God of glory, the God of love. David had a sincere reverence for his Lord, a true adoration of Yahweh God, and he leaned fully on God's forgiveness and mercy in this dreadfully painful season in his life. Now, second point. Why exactly was this such a painful season? This is what's known as a psalm of lamentation, a psalm of Uh, of mourning, wailing, crying out in soul agony and anguish. But why? Why the agony? Was it because of the consequences of his actions? I mean, the child 
uh, that, that would go on to be born would die in infancy here. They, he knew that just judgment was coming to his household, his family, but is this the reason for the agony, the, the coming judgments against his sin? No. It's that he had sinned against the one whom he adored. That's why there's agony here. Listen to the moment when David's sin finally catches up with him, when it finally clicks, when, when God sent Nathan the prophet to David, Nathan who would give an illustration of two men in a city, one rich, one poor. He said, listen, great king. Listen, great king. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his, his morsel of bread and drink of his cup, lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the rich man. The rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now watch this moment of, of self-righteousness, faux piety. As David assumes that Nathan is talking about a real-life scenario in his kingdom, which he has to judge over. The text says this, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Leading Nathan to then say to David, You are the man. And I wasn't there, but I don't think he said this harshly or angrily. You are the man. I don't think it was that way. I know it's portrayed that way sometimes. I think he said it soberly, solemnly. You are the man in this story, David. You are the compassionless man. You you had everything. God gave you everything, and you deserve nothing. You had everything. You were rich beyond words. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the land, hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? Can you switch that, Jake? That's where the agony comes in. Right there, okay? Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And that's exactly what happened, right? The child dies. The sword never departs from, from David's house. 
Though the Lord restored uh, fellowship with David, the rest of his life was riddled with conflict and blood, death, even incest. One of his sons raping one of his daughters. Another son attempting to take his place on the throne by turning the nation against him, and he was successful to some degree. Even, even the promise of his wives being defiled and the sight of all came true when Absalom went into his father's concubines into, in the sight of all Israel. Go read 2 Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 12 and, and on and look at the effects of David's action. It was a, it was a tragedy. And let me ask you again, is that why David was crying out in agony? Were the, were the consequences and judgments for his actions the reason that he was in his soul anguish here? No. It was that he despised the word of Yahweh, whom he adored. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. You see, when the true child of God, the true faithful man or woman of God, the true believer in Yahweh God then sins against his or her God, it ought to cause within us a deep soul agony. A soul anguish. In other words, a characteristic of true and saving faith is that we mourn over our sin. We, we lament our sin, which is what David does in verse 2 when he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Spurgeon said, Iniquity, sin, transgression. The words to use to denote our disobedience. He called them the three-headed dog at the gates of hell. What do they mean, though? Well, iniquity means perversity, depravity. Sin, you probably know, means falling short, missing the mark, missing the way. Transgression means blatantly, knowingly, willingly violating a divine boundary or law, which is exactly what David did, and he knew it. So he cries, wash me, not, not only my sins, but the whole man. Wash me, cleanse me like a garment. Remove the stain of sin from me. Wash me. As Isaiah recorded in his first chapter, uh, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. What an invitation by the Creator. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, they're They are red like crimson. They will be like wool. That's right. That's what David longs for in this moment. Wash me, he says. Cleanse me. Rid me of this gross perversion. He says, I know my transgressions. I know the lines that were drawn through your word. I knew these lines. I despised these lines, and I deliberately crossed these lines. I did it, just like Adam did with the fruit, right? That, that transgression, Adam says, is ever before me. I can't stop thinking about it. It's all-consuming at this moment. It's like we sang Psalm 32, same event, same event here. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long as a result of unconfessed sin. The true child of God is not apathetic over their sin or unconcerned with their transgressing of God's law. They don't downplay their sin. They don't minimize their sin or shift blame to someone else for their sin. We don't go on sinning like it's nothing. 
as John says, living in a state of ongoing and continual sin. Sin is what separates us from God. And while we still sin, occasionally, the trajectory of our lives should be one of holiness. The, the trajectory of one who possess, the, the lives of one who possesses saving faith is not one of repeated, flippant, and blatant sin. No, the, the believer is growing closer to God. We're not remaining stagnant or, or being further separated from him. In, in David's case, he went on for many months trying to play this whole thing off, trying to cover things up. Certainly while he was actively sinning, scheming against Uriah to have him killed, but but then it began to gnaw on him, you see? It, tremendous grief and sorrow began to creep in. Nathan told him, okay, listen, God will forgive you. God's going to forgive you. In other words, he's not going to kill you dead right now for committing adultery and murder. Two sins, by the way, uh, which there were no prescriptive sacrifices for. They meant the death penalty. Adultery, murdering someone, it was punishable by death. A life for a life. Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 21. Nathan says, look, he will forgive you. He will have mercy on you, but only because he made a covenant with you. And his chosen seed would come from your line through Solomon, who is not yet born. He's a covenant-keeping God. That's why his name is Yahweh. But even after hearing that he was forgiven of divine judgment, the reality of David's transgression was ever before him. Why? Because he felt a godly grief or a godly sorrow, a godly grief which then led to repentance, not a worldly grief that was more concerned with the punishment than the actual violation, but a godly grief that led to repentance. A lot of people have worldly grief. Oh, I feel so guilty. I feel so bad for the things that I've done. Even Judas felt grief for betraying Christ. Remember, he took the money, threw it over the Treasury? He, he, he felt guilty for betraying Jesus Christ to the point where he killed himself. That was grief leading to death. It wasn't godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance and life. A change of direction. A change of the whole person, the mind, the heart, the actions. Every, it's a 180 change. Radical transformation, I think Lloyd-Jones called it. Judas was more concerned about himself and what was going to happen to him than he was the honor of the Lord. The fact that he killed the Son of God, or betrayed him, I should say. David, on the other hand, was consumed with conviction and guilt because he had offended Yahweh. David knows it. He laments it. He mourns over it. He doesn't, doesn't just shrug it off like it's no big deal. Or even worse, go on sinning that God's grace may abound. I'm sure you've heard this. It's an idea which Paul scoffs at in Romans chapter 6. One that many professing Christians still today claim is an acceptable practice in God's sight. David knows that this is not God's desire for his children. This truth affects him deeply to his very bones, that he willfully and knowingly sinned against God. He even says it in verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, wait a second here. What does he mean that he's only sinned against the Lord? What about Bathsheba? Making her to be an adulteress, though she was willing. What about Uriah for Pete's sake? What about the baby? 
What about the men who died in battle in the army as they were pawns in David's nefarious schemes to conceal his sin? What about the nation of Israel and the horrendous example of their leader, their king? What does he mean he only sinned against the Lord? Well, as has been said, sin, by its very definition, is against God. It's God's law. Somebody said, quote, Once we understand that no sin is against a fellow human being alone, and that all sin is transgression against God, we will no longer treat it so lightly. And I agree with that. David knew this. And even though, the, even though he was well aware of the temporal damage he had caused, he was mostly concerned that he had done what was evil in the sight of his eternal God. God who, by the way, sees the heart, right? God who not only sees what's going on out here, like the rest of us, but has 20-20 vision as to what's going on in here. He sees it perfectly. David knew that God had seen his sin in its germ form, okay? From the moment he gazed upon this bathing beauty, the lust of the eyes, God saw it. To the thoughts of then what he wanted to do to her, the lust of the flesh, God saw it. To the deceitful, or excuse me, deceitful plotting that took place within his attempts to cover up his crimes, to spare himself the pride of life, God saw it. Yahweh saw it all, though nobody else could. Nobody else saw it. That's what David means when he says, I have done what is evil in your sight. It's not like human sight. It's worse than they think. In other words, God sees what others don't see. God sees within our thoughts, our propensities, our inclinations, our dreams, fantasies, things that we would be terrified for anyone else to discover about us. This is David's realization here that God saw it all. He saw everything. He knew that God knew all the intricate details of his heart. Verse 4 is his acceptance of this reality. He says, I'm not denying it. In fact, I, I know whatever judgment comes from it, whatever judgment comes my way, I deserve it because he knows. I'm not, I can't hide this from him. David now accepted the consequences and the divine condemnation of his actions. He no longer sought to escape or avoid it. He said, you are justified when you speak, Yahweh. Pure when you judge. Whatever consequences I have to face because of my transgression, I know I deserve it. Far worse, probably. He owns it. This is a characteristic of genuine saving faith here. I know I'm guilty. I know I, de I deserve divine judgment and condemnation. If not for my outright rebellious deeds, then for my thought life alone. And I know God is under zero obligation to show me mercy. In fact, he would be absolutely just in making me pay with my life and then summoning me to an eternity in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. So whatever is coming my way, I know it will be a perfectly just sentence. And it's the same for all of us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. Proverbs 28, 13. As Luther said, 
When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. I admit it. I deserve death and hell. What of it? That's acceptance, not avoidance. And it's characteristic of true and saving faith. Now, do you know where these first three characteristics of saving faith stem from? I mean, besides God sovereignly intervening in our lives, giving us the ability to then understand them. Do you know where agony over sin and acceptance of the just judgment for our sin comes from ultimately? The answer is in our agreeing with him. Agreeing that we are exactly who he says we are. And this may be the biggest stumbling block to those in modern-day American evangelicalism. In our pride, we just have the darndest time agreeing with God that we are as wicked as he says that we are. Many people don't even like talking about sin at all. But you can't have the good news without the bad news, right? Well, the bad news is we're wicked. Now, are we as wicked as we can, could be all the time? No but that's as a result of God's restraining grace, right? But do we have the capacity to have our wickedness manifested in some truly, truly awful ways? Absolutely. We could do it today. We could do it today. We could do some really awful things to each other, even right now. We have that capacity, certainly in our natural state. And David understood this perhaps better than anyone. Look what he says in verse 5. Behold, he says... I was brought forth in iniquity, in perversion, in depravity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Now again, he's not slamming his mama here. He's not saying his parents acted immorally. He's saying, I've got it. I got the disease. I got the traits. I've got the genes. It's in in my blood. It's in my genes. I got the virus. I got the sin virus. Even though I was just a babe in the womb, I was already conceived and then born with a corrupted and depraved nature. Spurgeon called it our inbred sin. It's our inbred sin. David says, this is my bent. This is my natural leanings. This is who I am. I'm not a sinner because I've sinned. I sin because I'm a sinner. One who was born condemned already. Judged already, Jesus said. Separated from a holy God already. You know, Gaga was right to some degree. We were born this way. (laughs) But we shouldn't desire to stay this way. Good night. How depressing. Again, this is called original sin. Sin entered the world through one man. Death through sin. Death spread to all men because all sin. We all sin. Because spiritual death had taken place from Adam, was passed down to all of Adam's line. Therefore, we are all totally depraved, absolutely incapable of living up to God's perfect standards in our natural sinful condition. And David says, I agree. I agree with you. Why would I deny it? Again, Spurgeon said, 
It is a wicked resting of Scripture to deny that original sin and natural depravity are here taught. Surely men who cavil at or object to this doctrine have need to be taught of the Holy Spirit what be the first principles of the faith. This is basic stuff, is what he's saying. Basic. A characteristic of genuine saving faith Agreeing with God that we are who he says that we are. Not downplaying our our sinful condition. Not downplaying our sinful condition. David says right here, I sin because that's who I am. It's what I do. But I don't flaunt it. Rather, I hate it. I hate it about myself. He then goes right back to God's character. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Note those two words, make me. God is showing David what really matters most. Not external presentation, but internal transformation, which comes through divine truth and revelation. So again, in sheer desperation, David falls at the mercy of his creator and begs for undeserved favor, mercy, forgiveness, which in the end, when he receives it, which he does, causes God to receive all the glory and all the credits. He ascribes everything to God, every ounce of glory, leaving none for himself. He deserves nothing. Purify me with hyssop, he says. I shall be clean. James Boyce notes that hyssop was a small plant frequently found growing in the crevices of stone wall. It was used for temple ceremonies. They used it to put the blood on the doorposts and the Passover. It, it, it was used to sprinkle blood upon one who had been healed of some infectious skin disease in an act of cleansing, ritual cleansing. David says, I need to be purged with hyssop, purified, decontaminated from my sin. Descend is what this means. That's what this word means. Descend me, please. Now, do you think that David took sin seriously? Of course he did. Descend me, purify me, wash me in the blood. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow, Isaiah. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Same words from back in verse 1. Wash, cleanse, blot out my sins, iniquities. Forget them. The crushed bones here speak figuratively of God's breaking him down to this point of humble confession and repentance. Just like Psalm 32. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness, knowing that divine joy far exceeds any earthly joy. Don't miss those two words there, make me. See them? A lot of people get so uptight about the thought of God making us do anything. This violates my free will, they say. We're not robots, they say. God can't make us love him. It wouldn't be true love, they say. I say, forget that. Free will? I don't want free will. If I had free will in the sense that they think they have free will, I'd probably be right there with David on that rooftop. 
But by God's grace, he restrains me. And frankly, I'm tired of what little will I have. I hate my remaining iniquity. I loathe it. Yet, I'm very aware of it. My sin is ever before me. To tell you the truth, I'd love nothing more than being a robot. If God were the one who programmed me, if he were the one behind the controls, in fact, I can think of nothing better than him sticking a big old wind-up key into my back and saying, Matt, you will now do my will, always. (laughs) Amen. Everything I want you to do, you will do it. You will think how I want you to think. You will talk how I want you to talk. You will treat your family how I want you to treat them. You will study my word like, you want, like I want you to study it. You will be a witness to this dying world like I want you to witness. And you will love me the way that I deserve to be loved. Always. I can't think of anything I want more. Oh, Lord, control me. Force me. Make me to love you as I ought. Please, wash me, cleanse me, purify me, discipline me. Do whatever it takes to have dominion over me. To override my so-called freedom of the will, which is not actually freedom at all, by the way. As our souls are in bondage to sin in our natural condition. Free will? No such thing. We're in bondage to sin. We're not free. We're in bondage to sin from our conception, from our birth. Until that is, he does graciously forgive us and free us if we truly belong to him. And through no doing of our own, but only through his overpowering our sinful natures, as he places his spirit into our hearts to change them and regenerate them, By faith through the shed blood of Christ at Calvary, he he does set us free by releasing us and, and, and freeing us from our original enslavement to sin that we inherited from our parents and they inherited from their parents. He does set us free from this bondage. To then what? Do whatever we want? Like, like, Live however we want as long as we prayed that prayer back in 97? Nonsense. Nonsense. He set us free by his grace alone, through faith alone, that we may be free finally for the first time to choose to actually choose to not sin against him. That's what true freedom is. We now have the choice to choose to not sin against him. Okay, that's true freedom. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. Before, we were completely enslaved to our our sin natures. We were were in bondage to our sin natures that we inherited from Adam. He sets us... All we could do was sin. We We couldn't choose to do anything that was glorifying to the Lord. But when he sets us free, he finally gives us that ability to choose to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. Now we are free. That's true freedom. And now sin shows itself for what it truly is. And we know it. And like David, we hate it. We long to be rid of it. We repent from it. We agonize over our sinning against God as as difficult as it is. We accept its consequences. Like David, we, we plead to be shown grace. 
grace of not only restoration, but of repentance, which is from God. We agree with God that we are who he says we are. And then we ascribe to him every shred of the glory, every ounce of the glory, when by his own free will and according to his mere good pleasure alone, he sovereignly determines to save some people from their having to pay the eternal consequences and penalties for their sin. The penalties of sin which he instead placed upon his one and only perfect son. This is such good news for the truly contrite believer in the gospel of grace, isn't it? Amen? How then, oh how, do we have so many in the church who distort God's character? Who are apathetic over their own sin and sin's consequences? Who minimize the reality of an eternal hell for those who don't truly believe? How is it that we have so many people, so many professing believers, seeking to ascribe glory to themselves in this pathetic display of self-adulation for their making such a tremendous sacrifice in accepting God's offer of salvation by choosing to believe in Him according to their own goodness and ability? Well, I prayed that prayer. I'm the one who did it, you see. I'm the one doing the good works now. I'm choosing to give this up or that up. I'm choosing the Christian lifestyle. I'm choosing him, and therefore, he's obligated to choose me. That's how it works, you know. Yeah, they say. God looked down the quarter of time, saw that I would choose him, pray that prayer, and therefore, he was then obligated to react by electing me for salvation. People think this way. He was obligated to save me based on some prayer that I prayed long ago. You know that a a good portion of folks who identify themselves as Christians in this country think this way, don't you? I'm not just making this up for effect here. I haven't really talked about this much, not, not really at all, but six years ago I was in a church down in Tennessee. It was my first full time position in full time ministry. Well, needless to say, as I stand here before you, it didn't quite work out. <laughs> and for theological reasons, which I'm not going to get into this morning, other than to say, apart from my belief in the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation, which they didn't appreciate much, they wanted me to assure the people that they were saved based on past professions alone. So I asked these elders down there, hold on a second now. You're telling me that you want me to give our people assurance of salvation even though I know that they're living life uh, they're living a life that is in prolonged blatant contradiction to that which is in clear accordance with the man or woman who have the spirit of God dwelling on the inside of them you want me to do this and they said yes and I said hmm that's interesting just hypothetically speaking what if some older woman in our congregation comes to me and says Matt I want you to do a a memorial for our son, Billy. And I want you to tell everyone that he's in a better place now. You know, because he prayed that prayer back in church camp, junior high school. I said to these pastors, you know, I happen to know Billy. And I know that Billy spent much of his adult life as a practicing homosexual Buddhist. I know that over the past few years, Billy was was adamant in his expressing his utter disdain for God. He 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 said he hated the church, 
He hated Jesus Christ. He said the Bible was a man-made book that was used to control people and manipulate people. Now, you want me to tell not only this woman, but the rest of the flock that Billy is in heaven with our Lord? And they answered, yes. And I said, on the basis of what? They said, and I kid you not, well, Billy said that he believed in Jesus as the Messiah at one point in his life. He had an intellectual assent to the reality that Jesus Christ had paid for his sins and once saved, always saved. They said he prayed that prayer. And I said, well, you know, I, I agree with the biblical teaching of the eternal security of a believer, but I would say that little Billy was not a true believer. I'd say that he was never actually of us. And I think we're closer than you think on the whole sovereignty of God over salvation thing, but I will never, never teach this easy, easy believism nonsense because it gives people a false assurance of salvation. And I'm not going to lie to these people. And they said, well, okay, we'll announce to the people next week that you're no longer in this position. And by God's grace, here I am. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie to you either. I want you to go home. I want you to look at this psalm tonight, okay? I want you to consider this psalm throughout the week. You tell me if the example we've been given from David is one of all I have to do is pray a quick prayer. Not only do I get out of hell free, but now I'm free to abuse the grace that's been extended to me and live any way I want with zero fear of repercussion. See if you notice anything of this sort in this prayer or, or, or any other Prayer throughout the Bible. Do you see anything like that in the Scripture? I'd like to see it. Come show it to me. My brothers and sisters, God did not send his Son into the world so that we might presume upon his grace by intentionally and knowingly living out the rest of our lives in willful rebellion against his commands. He sent his Son into the world to save sinners, not only from hell, but from themselves, from the their enslavement to their own sin. He, spent, he sent his spirit to indwell us. Why? why? Why would he send his spirit to indwell us? Just to go along for the ride of debauchery and, and carnality? Is that what he's doing? No. To convict us, to inform us, to transform us, to conform us into the image of Christ. Sure, we still sin, but true believers don't make excuses for our sin. Instead, we long to be rid of it. We long to be cleansed of it, purified from it. We long for that day when we are with him in glory in a place where there is no more sin, where there are no more transgressions. And we have the assurance in knowing that we belong to him, not based on some prayer that we prayed or anything that we did in our own strength, but we have the assurance, the rock-solid assurance that we belong to him because we are new creatures. We now love what he loves. We hate what he hates, including our own transgressions, just like David. Again, much more to say on this here. We've got a whole half a psalm left. We didn't even make it to verse 10. Lord willing, we'll pick up on it next week. 
Uh, It's worth noting as we close, however, that David did receive divine pardon. He was washed in the precious blood of Christ, forgiven of all his iniquities. And the same can be said of you this morning. If you would but hear the call of God through his word alone and come to him by faith alone in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You have any questions about what this looks like? Come and talk to me or one of the other elders after the service. For now, let's pray as the music team comes up and closes us in musical worship. We praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent psalm. We thank you for this glorious testimony of a redeemed child of God crying out to you in agony over his transgressing your holy commands. Lord, may we have that same response to our own sin, we pray. Thank you for uh, using King David to, as, as an illustration for us. We're, we're so grateful for this psalm. We look forward to, if you will, another week considering it. And we're just so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your gospel. Thankful for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.